This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. And today we're going to talk about uh, the penultimate truth by Philip K. Dick, which uh, was it from the 1960s? 1964, right? Oh, yes. Um, But uh, there's three. It's it's not exactly a fix up book, fix up novel, but there are three shorter pieces that sort of add details to. Uh, I don't know. Add I, they're the ideas that make up the backbone of the novel. Yeah, I guess it's like yeah. the DNA of the novel. Yeah, there's That's the a good word phrase. <laughs> DNA of the penultimate truth is uh, starts with the Defenders, first published in Galaxy Science Fiction, January 1953, and uh, if Worlds of Science Fiction. August 1955 has the mold of Yancey, which I think is my favorite of the three. And uh, then the unreconstructed M, which is from 1957. Uh, sorry, the original science fiction stories magazine, January 1957. So we've got uh, 53. It's essentially 52, though. Uh, 1955, then 57, and then 64. And he's still working on it. I, I don't think the book's finished quite yet. I'm looking forward to the next draft. Oh, yeah? Through the Rider <laughs> one more time. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. It's not it's not a bad book at all. It's just um, I, I was much more engaged with the ideas, and I think he's really engaged with it. But I, I also think that the problem that uh, the main character has at the beginning of the book um, is also the problem Dick was having. He just couldn't write. And so he's, he's gonna, he's, you know, sitting at the typewriter and he can't write. And so he just goes and digs up some old stories and then says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rewrite these. And, uh, it doesn't quite work. Um, so did you feel like it didn't it, come together at the yeah, end? Yeah, I, I kept, I kept hoping that the ending was gonna be like, oh, pow, you know, but, it's more like, well, we'll see, <laughs> which I guess is an idea. Yeah. But uh, right near the beginning, the wife who, or she's not a wife, I don't know. She's another uh, she's, Yance woman. <laughs> she's one of the few female characters in this book. This, right. This, this book is such a sausage fest. It's, yeah. It really is, it's, yeah. It's got some, It's got some stuff going on, but... Right at the beginning, Colleen, uh, she, right before she leaves, after he says, what's, what's wrong? Did your arm fall off again? Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> Which, uh, for a Philip K. Dick book is entirely possible until you realize he's just being <laughs> Anyways, she, she's, she's very encouraging despite his, um, kind of being an asshole there. Uh, and then she goes and reads what he's written. And one of the things he, he's written says, I, I can just never tell about you, Colleen said, if you passionately love your job or hate it. And so he's talking about Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. himself. She read the sentence aloud, quote, the well-informed dead rat romped under the tongue 
tied pink log. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> like uh, the lazy brown fox jumped over the lazy, I don't know, however it goes, you know. It's that sort of uh, just random words on the top of a page. The writer sitting there seeing a blank, not knowing what to write, and he, so he just does that. I think this is that's how this book got started is just Philip K. Dick sort of looking in the mirror and writing exactly what's happening to him. He's got a deadline for a, a new ace book to come out or Valentine book to come out. And uh, it's just not happening. Ah, I thought this one was like a lot more kind of um, cohesive and, and clearer than his usual. Like it felt a lot tighter to me, sort of like <laughs> the symmetry from start to finish. It did. Uh-huh. It's not uh, something, but I, I, it's it's not quite there. I, I mean, you, you you got you got half a dozen ideas again. None. Of, I mean, some of which are undercooked. Okay, they're all undercooked to one degree or another, and the ending does kind of like okay, we're going to stop now and leaving leaving a whole lot of things really unexplained. Okay, so are all the people going to? Maybe we should even talk about what happens in this book. I know it's futile for mm-hmm. a dick novel, but we could try anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was reading the Wikipedia summary, and I was like, that's not how it ends. Um, and I went back and re-listened to the end. No, that's definitely not how it ends. Oh, really? Um, the Wikipedia's wrong? Or? <laughs> it happens, it happens. Huh. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it, the Wikipedia entry is the one that clued me into the the unreconstructed M having anything to do with this, which it's, it's a story I'd never even tried to read before just cause it's a long one. And, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, uh, it also prompted me to read the mold of Yancey, which, um, because it's not public domain, unlike, uh, the unreconstructed M and, um, the defenders, I, I hadn't read either, but, uh, I think, I think so. Like the Defenders is one of those stories that I I just didn't like at all when I read it. I was like, what? what what's this sort of junk? This doesn't feel like Philip K. Dick. It's sort of just junk. It is very early in his war. It is very early, but some of his early stuff is just super kick ass. And this is, it's not great. But translating it to a novel where you get uh, essentially the whole plot of this book is a sequel to the defenders and you know there's lots of modifications Mm -hmm. but um it the the plot of the novel is basically the length of the book as well or or maybe i'm saying that wrong what i'm trying to say is the plot of the short story is the same plot as the plot of the novel Mm -hmm. it's but because it's a longer meditation on the same topic um, and we're less concerned about the mechanics of getting from the beginning of the end of the story in a certain amount of space, which is what the short story does. Um, I think that the idea flows better in the novel, and I can appreciate the short story a hell of a lot more because of that. On the other hand, um, I think The Mold of Yancey as a short story does its job way better than the novel does because in the novel I'm trying to f- find the thread of the Yance men making sense and it's sort of there, but it's. I think I also wouldn't ha- know what the hell's going on if I hadn't read Mold of Yancey uh, with regard to what's going on in the novel because it's not, never explained who Yancey is until you're way into it, right? 
Right, and and explaining just how persuasive and how useful he is in keeping the people down below in a in line, as it were. Yeah, the mold of Yancey makes it absolutely clear that they're using basically psychological techniques on on, on the on the on the vats in order to uh, keep the people from rising up. Although it doesn't always work because it's clear because we have those we have those little. Conaps, conaps with wub fur carpeting. Yeah. Cut that wall to wall wub fur. Yep, yeah. we gotta yeah. check, check off our thing. So yep. I mean, people do come up now and again, as does uh, one of one of our uh, viewpoint characters looking looking for an artifact, artifact, uh, artifact, yeah. I think that's not the first time we've seen that. Either. No, no, it's not the first time we've seen artificial organs. So, but in the main, people are kind of conditioned. By, by these broadcasts to keep putting out stuff for, for the surface. Yeah. So what do, what do you think? Should we? Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, it felt like in the novel, um, I got the impression that Yancey was more like a, a leader, like a president, or even like a military kind of oh, presence. Yeah. Whereas in that short story, The Mold of Yancey, it was much more like a pop culture kind of influence that was syndicates a syndicate controlling uh yeah it's sort yeah. of government quasi government corporatist uh, it's it was it's a really good short story actually yeah I, I keep thinking about it and i'm like damn that's he's nailed us he's nailed us so well um, i know it was so good i was thinking even even to the level of like the kardashians and gwyneth paltrow and stuff like this kind totally, of like yep. lulling people into this like oh yeah we've all got to be just like that and do what they're doing and well yeah i mean the, the other thing though is is it it's it's not exactly our world right no. so but uh, maybe we should talk about the plots of all of these things a little bit um so why don't we start with the mold of Yancey, just because i love it the most uh, it's set on Callisto, which is not related to our book at all. So he's obviously just, you know, transposed the the, the society a couple of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Set on Callisto, um, they've been in a there was a war between the Jupiter moons and uh, Mars in the past, and the uh, police on Earth, who I guess are trying to govern the whole system. Um, think that the the society on Callisto is turning into a totalitarian state. Mm-hmm. They go to investigate, and there they discover, um, oh, the border guys say, oh, yeah, you're a cop. Okay, come on in. We know you, you must be worried about us or something, because this is the third cop we've seen. And, like, the guy's he's trying to be undercover, right? Doesn't work out. Um, it, it's okay. They know he's a spy, but it's fine. And then he investigates the world, and everything seems uh, pretty non-totalitarian, except for the fact that everybody sort of has a bland opinion about everything. Yeah, and all kind of the same. Right, and, which, which sets his uh, spidey sense off. Like, this, there's got to be something wrong here. What? Yeah. I would have thought so. There must be some mechanism we don't understand. It's all open. We can look everything over. We must be looking for the wrong thing. Idly taverner gaze at the television screen above the bar. A nudie girl song and dance routine and ended. Now the features of a man faded into view. A genial, round-faced man in his 50s with guileless blue eyes. An almost childish twitch to his lips. A fringe of brown hair playing around his prominent ears. Friends, the TV image rumbled. It's good to be with you again tonight. I thought I'd have a little chat with you. 
Yeah. I love that. He's like uh, Ronald Reagan. Oh God, yes. He's he's um he's the fireside chat from the president. He's just a homey, down home guy. Mm-hmm. In the illustration, he's got a hoe. He's always working on his garden. He's got the grandkid and uh, or whatever. Um, but I think his analysis of uh, our North American society is dead on in that if you give them something to talk about, the Kardashians, whatever, um, and what, what the line is, um, war is bad. Everyone knows war is bad, but just wars have to be fought. And well, yeah, that makes sense. Cats are definitely better than dogs. Right? <laughs> oh boy, there's a strong position, right? So that it's it's political correctness, right? Mm-hmm. It's everybody sort of knows what everybody should be doing. A very soft sort of society pushing, uh, sort of media pushing society in a certain direction. Or is it pulling, right? It's it's really weird. And then he transforms that and fits it into the idea of the Defenders, which also makes it's a perfect fit, I think. Don't you think? It is, uh, it is a nice welding. Yeah. So the the Defenders is set in a post-nuclear Holocaust world. Uh, basically, I was thinking about how much Marissa's been playing Fallout 3 and <laughs> I've been playing Fallout 4. It, yeah. is, it is basically the plot of uh, the novel. Uh, the Penultimate Truth is basically the plot of another Fallout game we haven't played yet because you're uh, worried about the Overseer. His health is really bad and he needs an artifog heart, so you have to go, you know, strap on your vault suit and go out into the into the wasteland and get that and return it to your your uh, your cave. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. Doesn't it totally play out like a Fallout game? Yeah, I was totally and, feeling that. Yep, yeah, and he, eventually, yeah, he he goes back and. Uh, Drags one of the uh, Yancey men with him, who's afraid of all the fallout. What's going to happen? He's, he's a companion. Yeah, you see, yeah, he's a companion. He finds on uh, on the quest. Yeah, he, he's a he's a GMC NPC who winds up That's joining right. your little party. And there's even Letty's out there, right? The uh, the uh, robots with the I don't know the buzzsaw companions that do all the work for you in your house. Uh, what are they called? Yeah, I, I can't remember. In the game, they they're like they're floating on a basically a jet of hot gas that's burning the carpet, <laughs> and then it's got like uh, three hands, two eyes, and uh, one of the hands is like a, a chop saw. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn, this is it. also by the way, not just uh, Fallout sort of doing this book. It's also uh, Hugh Howie's whole career, man. Oh yeah. That's right. true. You never noticed the like, wow, you Howie. I guess you read a Philip K. Dick book, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, that's not, I mean, that may be a little uncharitable, but that isn't. He's got. This is the same book, in, in premise-wise, right? Even the ideas that you know what's out there, sort of, uh, it's it's the same story. Huh. No. Yeah, I, I only read the comic book, so I can't tell you uh, exactly point by point. 
But the plot's the same, isn't it? Do you know, Paul? Because I only read the first part of Hugh Howie's. Yeah, um, I've only read a little bit and decided it was not for me, so I'm, I'm not a Hugh Howie scholar, unfortunately. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, but maybe one of our listeners can comment and tell us that for full of... They, what, what do they call them? Ant bottles or ant, ant tanks? That's what they're ant called. Ant tanks, yeah. Ant tanks in the novel. Um, there's... Uh, uh, what they're called vaults in Fallout, but essentially it's the same thing. There's a whole bunch of people living underground trying to survive a nuclear holocaust above. Um, and in fall the Fallout universe, it's definitely uh, there was a war. In the Defenders, it seems there was no war. Um, and in uh, the Penultimate Truth, there was a war, but it didn't last very long. Uh huh. So there's a bunch of stuff going on there. And I think that all all of those three ideas work really well, but I'm not convinced that uh, the welding of the unreconstructed M welds as well, because I'm liking the story of the unreconstructed M, but I'm... It, it goes into much more detail about what that thing is, whereas in the novel, it's just... It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's almost it's, not it's, there it's, at all. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an assassination weapon, and, and it almost... Almost a almost a side thing, and tried to throw off. Uh, okay, did did the guy really send it? But why did he send, leave his uh, own prints there? Oh, he did that because the poor people. Yeah. <laughs> Socio political reminds me of a lot of is the game players of Titan, where you have yeah. where you have people owning these this small smaller uh, group owning these vast territories, and then you have basically people under under them as it were i mean in in this novel they're in ant tanks literally under them yeah <laughs> under the, but in in game players of titan we had i mean they were basically living in these uh oh, i i had come up with the term years ago called neo feudalism and it appears mm-hmm. that these couple novels dick really likes to go for this techno neo feudalism where where you basically i mean they're not given noble titles per se but they are as a class the yancy men and also the the landowners back in the game players of Titan kind of have these little uh, fiefdoms of their own, and they are squabbling and fighting with each other. Yeah, that's true. There was a couple of like novels that seemed to come together in this one because um, even the the Megavac computer was reminding me of Vulcan right. uh, two or three as well. Like, yep, wasn't it even? I think in this novel it was also kind of excavating its way into the ground and growing rooms. <laughs> yep. Just like Vulcan. The, the name uh, Megavac is also sort of a Isaac Asimov, right? Multivac is. Multivac. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's doing it from vacuum, like <laughs> vacuum tubes, right? But mega multi. Um, you're seeing a progression. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, Philip K. Dick's definitely. Uh, he's. That's what I'm thinking is is that there's a lot of good stuff in here, but that the if I hadn't read The Mold of Yancey, I wouldn't appreciate this novel as much as I do. And uh, I appreciate The Defenders a hell of a lot more now that I have. But but the stuff about the unreconstructed M, uh, I think, is is undercooked is the term for it. But too undercooked in that there's you sort of see that that's the plot uh, with Bros and uh, Mont- uh, Lantano. Uh, is Lantano in one of the, is he in the, um, unreconstructed M as well? Yeah. Yeah. I know some of the names cross over. That, that, that Philip K. Dick thing of, of 
repurposing people across stories. Right. But he's... he, he, go go ahead, Marissa. Oh, I was just gonna say. I think yeah, he's a isn't he a slaver in the unreconstructed M? He, he uh, he's definitely the the quasi antagonist. He's, he's, he's also he's also a slaver in in this book. Everybody's a slaver, right? The 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 Lettys are slaves, and they're slaves manufactured by the people under in the uh, in the tanks. Yeah, or themselves slaves. Uh, well, but they they don't know uh, that it's not you know like it's uh, that's the there's a nice Goodreads review uh, saying you know these are my terms but it's one percent and then ninety nine percent all of the ninety nine percent don't know uh, what's happening right. really exactly <laughs> but they are laboring intensely under delusion and uh, the the product. Uh, you know, of their manufacturing, the product of their labor goes to the one percent. And I'm like, damn, that's a damn fine analysis because that is exactly what's going on. Yeah. And, and watching the Kardashians uh, as your <laughs> or the you know the scandal of the day. Uh, yeah, and the, perpetuating it, that kind of no yeah, thinking obedience. And um, and I think that that works. Extremely well. I, I was thinking about while while we were listening to this book over the week, I was thinking about Marissa playing Fallout, me playing Fallout, and I was also thinking about Paul, and Paul's like a big history fan, right? Um, and I was thinking, Paul, uh, isn't this society? It's it's not even feudal. It's almost Roman in that you've got um. Two or three guys, right? Everybody's got a slave, sure, but yep. there's two or three guys, Sulla and Pompey yeah, or whoever. You're talking, you're talking about the triumvirates, yeah. Right, who own basically, you know, 100,000 slaves each, um, have private armies, um, are waging war. Uh, Against each other. For, for political, uh, you know, jockeying, yep. not for... Um, and, and even the... The land grants that sort of the land grant system that's in this in this novel is very Roman in that, you know, you're you get the territory. But um, when your when your people come up, um, they are. Yeah, it is sort of proto feudal in that you have to grant them their own lands. And then that means more pushing into other people's territory. So it's very. uh uh, yeah, and that whole clearing of uh, of, mm-hmm. of the radioactive stuff and trying to make your your stake once once again we get a once we once again we get a Cheyenne this one nuked mm-hmm. and we get Estes Park again. Mm-hmm. I, I stayed I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast. I stayed in Estes Park when I went to Colorado. It's a beautiful little little town on the edge of Rocky Mountain National Park, and that's also where the hotel with the Shining takes place. Mm. But trying to imagine that as a as a center of government's kind of kind of a mind. It's like, huh? No, not really. It's a tiny, tiny little tourist town. It's a nice town, but yeah, you could burn a government from there. Well, you know, they they had to go on a a trip with the kids, so that's where they went. And Philip K. Dick has to incorporate everything. He, <laughs> he, does. Well, he, he does like to throw it into the crockpot and see what happens. So, so. Uh, in previous books, we had pretty brown, pretty brown fox, wasn't it? Wasn't 
Pretty Brown Fox? Uh, Blue Fox. Blue Fox. Pretty Blue Fox. Yeah. Pretty Blue Fox uh, was the name of the condo. Oh, no, that wasn't the name of the condo. Those uh, Lincoln Apartments or something. Yeah. The condo. Um, but pretty bar. Blue Fox was the the social network for California or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, in here we have the Tom Mix uh, tank, right? And um, I think the, I was I was I was like, oh boy, there's going to be a really nice parallel, and there was. There's a couple. So you guys know who Tom Mix was? No, I read that he was an actor, but I don't. Yeah, he's he's a. He was the first uh, cowboy icon in movies, and he was born in Pennsylvania and joined the army briefly and then moved, uh, became a real-life cowboy and then uh, eventually moved to California and became a movie star um, and was in like 290 movies or something, uh, all, almost all of them uh, silent, right? Um, but... Uh, Tom Mix uh, also has the distinction, uh, like another fellow we know, of having five wives. Um, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and um, in his uh, uh, icon status, there's also uh, there's a picture of Philip K. Dick as a kid uh, dressed up like a uh, movie cowboy. Uh, oh. And it's sort of before the um, – uh, it would have been right before – uh, the later movie cowboys like uh, uh, John Wayne and all them sort of really became um, because he's really little. He's like seven or eight years old in the picture. Huh. He's probably dressed up like Tom Mix, which is, I think, pretty hilarious. Wow. Yeah, I'm, lo- I'm looking That's... at the Wikipedia entry on him and there's cultural reference to him all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so apparently he was a big deal once upon a time. So He was huge, yeah. yeah. I mean, the fact that I know about him, uh, and you know, I was born. <laughs> I've never seen one of his movies. I was born way after anybody, you know, I knew would have seen any of his movies. That tells you he was pretty big, big deal. But um, completely forgotten, except apparently there's a a tank named after him, <laughs> uh, and clear evidence that you're living in a Philip K. Dick world. Yeah, <laughs> something like that is referenced. Um, so, uh, like, you know, I want to, I want to talk about this thing. I asked you guys to ask me about Plato. Plato. Talk to Plato. us about Plato. Okay. So, um, w- I didn't notice it when I read the Defenders the first time, which was years and years ago. I didn't notice it when I read the Defenders more recently, but in reading the novel, uh, the penultimate truth, I'm like, Holy crap, it's so obvious, and it makes so much sense. Um, Philip K. Dick was a big fan of the classics, right? He, I think, in the mold of Yancey, um, there's a really good sequence um, talking about what the solution to this horrible society is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really nice analysis um, of why, what... What he's saying is going on. I think it's not exactly right for our reality, but it's pretty damn close. Um, and basically, I'll just read the section from right near the end of the mold of Yancey. Um, you know, Yancey said slowly, that makes a person do some thinking. Automatically, he reached for his glass of gin and tonic, a glass which up until now would have contained beer. 
And the magazine beside the okay, and the magazine beside it wasn't Dog Stories Monthly. It was the Journal of Psychological Review. Uh, so instead of going for the the plain, right, the simple, instead of having landscapes on the uh, calendar, uh, so it'll just be the end here as well. There was one Gestalt taverner wished he could see that. Was, there was one Gestalt taverner wished he could see, but it wouldn't be around for a long time. It would have to wait. Yancey was going to change his taste in art slowly but steadily. One of these days, the public would learn that Yancey no longer enjoyed pastoral calendar scenes. That now he preferred the art of the 15th century Dutch master of the macabre and diabolical horror, Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> right. So. Everything should be about challenging and questioning instead of um, giving, you know, definite answers to inane questions like which is yummy or peanut butter or jelly, which is entirely what something could be talked about, right, in a Yancey video. Um, you say, well, here's what I think, and I'm probably uh, not like you. I'm a weirdo. And then somebody says, no, he's wrong. And that's, that's what's wrong is there's basically, you know, in, in, in the only class that you should ever really have in, in high school is, uh, critical thinking, basically. Yeah. And just call that whatever, you know, how do you have a critical thinking test? I don't know. I think that's why they don't do it. I really felt that when I was reading that short story. I want to read it again because I was like, yeah. oh, my God. So this good. Is, yeah, this is exactly like what it feels like our society is like regressing into right now. Like this kind of like nothing can be challenged, no critical thinking. Yeah, I found I, I actually underlined it here. I forgot my spot. Um, okay, so I've come to see the essential key to the Yancey character, the key to the new type of person we're growing here. It's simple. It's the element that makes the person malleable enough to be led around. I'll bite, Taverner said patiently, hoping the line to Washington was good and clear. All Yancey's beliefs are insipid. The key is thinness. <laughs> Every part of his ideology is diluted, nothing excessive. We've come as close as possible to no beliefs. You notice that wherever possible, we've canceled attitudes out, left the person apolitical without a viewpoint. And then he brings the kid up. Uh, and says, hey, son, uh, what do you think about war, right? And he just sort of parrots back whatever the politicians are saying, right? Yeah. And I'm like, damn, that's our society right there. Exactly. Oh, I wish he'd, oh. I wish he'd incorporated more of this stuff into the totally. ultimate truth. Yep, this, re yeah. this reminds me of a William Chen story. Have you read William Chen? Yeah, no, yeah, he's fun. Uh, William, William Chen was a satirist science fiction author who wrote in the 50s and 60s, and one of his stories was called Null P, where, mm. where the most average person in the entire world, George Abney, go, basically his ideas and beliefs, basically his average basically becomes what everybody accepts because he's so average, everyone can relate to him. He And, at, and after a nuclear war, there was a nuclear war that, and society's been devastated. He's the, he's the kind of person they kind of revolve around and draw into, and he basically helps... Uh, moderate the United States and the entire world to his way of thinking. But he is very, and he is explicitly written as such because Ten, ten loved it. He is very insipid, not very much of a deep thinker. He's just kind of 
average and there. And it's huh. one of my favorite William Ten stories because, yeah, it's just like society basically getting trolled out because of his influence. It's yeah, he's perfectly you know, normal, he's Dick, perfectly average, and yeah, everyone follows. Dick wrote a null story as well. I can't remember the name of it, but um, he was really influenced. Uh, he read uh, the guy who wrote the null A stories, who's that A.E. Van Vaught. Um, and he, he's like, wow, my God. And he suddenly became like obsessed with writing science fiction after reading the, uh, A.E. Van Vaught. And I've read A.E. Van Vaught and I gotta tell you, he ain't that great a shakes of a writer. Um, but, uh, I, I think they're really glomming onto something interesting and that's, it's, it's sort of that thing that engages. There's a, a another section right after the one I read that I think is good too. I want to read this here. Um, Yancey plays croquet, so everybody fools around with a mallet. Sipling's eyes gleamed. But suppose Yancey had a preference for Kriegspiel. For what? (laughs) (laughs) Chess played on two boards. Each player has his own board with a complete set of men. He never sees the other board. A moderator sees both. He tells each player when he's taken a piece or lost a piece or moved into an occupied square or made an impossible move or checked or his check is in check himself. I see, Tabiner said quickly. Each player tries to infer his opponent's location on the board. He plays blind. Lord, it would take every mental faculty possible. The Prussians taught their officers military strategy that way. It's more than a game. It's a cosmic wrestling match. <laughs> that, to me, reminds us of... Um, uh, wasn't there a, a cosmic wrestling match? It was the entire plot of one of Dick's books not too long ago was set in a small town oh yeah one of the really early puppets cosmic puppets there it is it's a cosmic wrestling match what with what if yancey sat down in the evening with his wife and his grandson and played a nice six-hour game of (laughs) (laughs) pre-spiel suppose his favorite books instead of being westerns gun-toting anachronisms there you go uh were greek tragedy Suppose his favorite piece of music was Bach's Art of the Fugue, not my old Kentucky home. I'm beginning to get the picture, Tavener said, as calmly as possible. I think we can help. I was like, yeah, that's, no, he's a great, great story. And it's, it's there in the novel. It's just sort of subdued by the machinations of the plot, which. Yeah, the, the overall arching plot kind of uh, subdues and trowels it down a bit. Mm-hmm. I think Marissa liked it, though. I did, yeah. I really did like it. I think the the unreconstructed M stuff, like that was the bit that felt a bit like convoluted and mm-hmm. and, and weird just, to like, me. But throw it in, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say like I liked it more or less than his other work. I just thought it was um, a lot less like chaotic. It was kind of like just these two point of views and the characters were really clear, like what they wanted. You could see them kind of coming towards each other. Like at one point they're going to obviously meet and figure out the differences in their worlds. And that was really fun to read. I mean, I, I, I'm still trying to figure out, I mean, where Lantano really comes into this because you, you, you you have, you have this, you have this plot of these Yancey men and you have, you have, you have the, 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 uh, the ant bats and people coming up out of those. And then you have this time traveling Cherokee warrior who, who changes his, who changes, who changes the, his appearance and he oscillates between different imagery 
Yeah. He, he, he feels like he walked in from a, a dick story we've never read. Mm-hmm. But wait, oh, maybe oh, oh, we those... have read it because wasn't that uh, what is it now? Wait for last year or something? Or Time Pond? Was it Time Pond uh, with the Time Pond had? Uh, oh, Time Pond's not the right name of the novel. Time Pond had uh, the Doctor Futurity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the natives in. Um, Right, 16th, in America. 16th century America. Not Cherokee, though, I don't think. No, and, and, and they weren't living all the way up to the present like like uh, Lantano does. And it's like, that's not really explained. Like, why does he get to have this ability? Sure, we, we understand that they sent those stuff back to try to uh, frame the Yancey man so they can't do the dig. And I, I found that really interesting. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to plant art of... Fake artifacts of an alien, failed alien invasions, so you can't build on this land. That, that's just just a weird dick idea. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, it, it does work as a novel. I I like it as a novel. Yeah. It's just not it's not kick ass like some of his stuff when it really gels together. I kept going back to the beginning and trying to see if it did tie in with the end. So one of the things that happens right at the beginning is we got a squirrel, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a speech about a squirrel, which Yancey has to give, and our hero has to write. And that speech never really shows up in the book. There is, like, little bits of it here and there. Mm-hmm. But then uh, it's actually in. <laughs> there is a speech about a squirrel in the mold of Yancey, isn't it? Yeah. Which it, it's a really good speech too. I'm like, wow, that's good. Um, so that it's like he sort of just abandoned what he was doing there. Um, and then there was an actual squirrel that he said he saw that the, he sent the Lettys after as well before the novel started. And, uh, they concluded that he was delusional and he concluded he was delusional. And I think Dick concluded he was delusional, but, um, it doesn't come back at the end. You know, there's no like, uh, and a little screen creature. <laughs> like he, he is very good at doing in other pieces. So it just brings it all together and ties it up in some sort of questionable bow. Um, it doesn't quite end in a way that is satisfying. Like the Wikipedia entry has a really nice conclusion for the book and i'm like wow i wish that was there what, says, what is the conclusion in there okay so it says however adams figures out that lantana was behind the deaths of as part of a plot to bring down bros in desperation and fear he joins up with saint james who discovered a cache of artificial organs and flees to the tom mix tank with him that's all sounds right mm-hmm. they discovered that lantana was ultimately successful but contemplate that the biggest lie is yet to come and i'm like i guess that's right yeah, they have to lie to all the people about what's going on. To bring them up slowly. Bring them up slowly. But haven't they been doing that? Uh, that's, the, that's the entire ending and discovery of the Defenders, right? Yeah. Is that's what the, the Leddies have been doing. Is they? And I wanted it to tie in so that, you know, that quota that we're so worried about, uh, the meeting the quota and what if they get expelled and all that stuff. I was thinking... Well, maybe what's going to happen is as soon as you can't meet your quota, as soon as you just give up, that's when they let you out. But that's not the case, right? No, 
Do we even know what they do do if they don't meet their quota? Like, it sounds like they kind of they get their they're food rations mean. cut they're down. Mean. Yeah. yeah, they're just mean. There's no uh, there's no reward and punishment. It's just that they're just extracting the juice and from these tanks, and that works sort of as a 99% versus the 1% uh, thing. But I think as a it made me appreciate the defenders so much more. And I, I want, I almost got there and then I, I went off on a tangent. I want to talk about Plato. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, in the Republic, uh, by Plato, there is a section, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff in there. There's a section and Philip K. Dick is a fan of the classics. This is actually how I got off track before he's read the Republic. He knows all about Plato and it shows up a lot of ancient Greek stuff sort of shows up in Dick's writings. Uh, he's a fan of the Odyssey as well, but back to Plato. Um, there's a part of the Republic called the myth of the cave or the allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. Um, I was taken with it the first time I read it. I know Dick's been taken with it too, and it really fits in with his work in general. But uh, here's the Wikipedia entry. I've also got uh, the actual text translated but it's really long so i think i'll just go with the uh, regular wikipedia entry okay plato begins by asking glaucon who is his brother um to imagine a cave where people have been imprisoned from childhood these prisoners are chained so that their legs and necks are fixed forcing them to gaze at a wall in front of them and not look around the cave at each other or themselves so we're already seeing them watching tv essentially Behind the prisoners is a fire, and between the fire and the prisoners is a raised walkway with a low wall, behind which people walk carrying objects or puppets of men and other living things. The people walk behind the wall so their bodies do not cast shadows for the prisoners to see, but the objects they carry do, just as puppets showmen have screens in front of them at which they work their puppets." The prisoners cannot see any of this behind them and are only able to see the shadows cast upon the cave wall in front of them. The sounds of the people talking echoing off the shadowed wall and the prisoners falsely believe these sounds come from the shadows. Socrates suggests that the shadows constitute reality for the prisoners because they have never seen anything else. They do not realize what they see are shadows of objects in front of a fire, much less that these objects are inspired by real living things outside the cave. And uh, I think there's a really good section in uh, the penultimate truth that goes through the process of, is it in the penultimate truth where they show San Francisco like model being destroyed by a nuclear bomb or something. Yeah. And, and of course we also have a lot of uh, the film stuff that's in the novel that, you know, Reconstructions of uh, documentaries and false reconstructions, mixed, no false reconstructions, but also mixed with real stuff. So you have Hitler and Stalin and Roosevelt meeting and uh, conspiring against the Nazis, but actually uh, it's only two of the parties and they're speaking in German or whatever it is. Yeah. And then there's the Russian. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Russians show up at the White House. Stalin shows up at the White House and they speak in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, they keep yeah, making really speak they speak in German or whatever. You know, it's like, oh yeah, okay. So, yeah, it reminds me of uh, 1984 where uh, Winston Smith is changing past documents. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. To fit, to fit, to fit the current orthodoxy. 
So it, Plato's just assigning this uh, as the, the the premise, and Dick does tons of work explaining why this situation would happen, right? But I, I want to continue because there's two other sections. Go ahead. So departure from the cave. Plato then supposes that one prisoner is freed or goes on a quest, uh, being forced to turn and see the fire. The light would hurt his eyes and make it hard for him to see the objects that are casting the shadows. If he is told that what he saw before was not real, but instead was the objects uh, he is now struggling to see, oh, sorry, but instead that the objects he is now struggling to see, he would not believe it. In his pain, Plato continues, the freed prisoner would turn away and run back to what he can see and is accustomed to, that is the shadows of the carried objects he writes. Uh, it would hurt his eyes, and he would escape by turning away to the things which he was able to look at. And these he would believe to be clearer than what was being shown to him. So this is, I think, tying very nicely into what's going on in, in the the novel for, uh, and in the mold of Yancey as well. Uh, the, the, the Yance man writing a lies, um, knowing that they're lies, and having his son believe the lies. Mm-hmm. And growing up in a society like that. Yeah. Ooh, that that's kind of the stuff. That's what I loved about this book was like the mm-hmm. idea of like this whole society all just working on like film sets and creating this whole big false reality together. And then again, it's just making me think of like Hollywood and stuff again, like this kind of totally. all these like documentaries that come out now that are just like not really documenting anything. They're just making up. Yep. shit. <laughs> Plato continues, suppose that someone should drag him by force up the rough ascent, the steep way up, and never stop until he could drag him out into the light of the sun. The prisoner would be angry and in pain. This would only worsen when the radiant light of the sun overwhelms his eyes and blinds him. The sunlight is representative of the new reality and knowledge that the freed prisoner is experiencing. Slowly his eyes adjust to the light of the sun. First he can see only shadows, gradually he can see the reflections of people and things in the water, and then later see the people and things themselves. Eventually, he's able to look at the stars and the moon at night until he finally he can look up and see the sun itself. Only after he can look straight at the sun is he able to reason about it, which is, of course, a sign of madness, right? Staring straight at the sun and what yeah. <laughs> what it is. Um, and then finally, there's a last section, the return to the cave. And we have that in this book as well, right? Return. They return to the tank. Yep. Plato continues saying that the freed prisoner would think that the world was su- the real world was superior to the world he experienced in the cave. He would bless himself for, for the change and pity the other prisoners and would want to bring his fellow qua- cave dwellers out of the cave and into the sunlight. The returning prisoner whose eyes have become, become accl- accl- acclimated to the light of the sun would be blind when he re-enters the cave, just as he was when he was first exposed to the sun. The prisoners, according to Socrates, would infer from the returning man's blindness that the journey out of the cave had harmed him and that they should not undertake a similar journey. Socrates concludes that the prisoners, if they're able, would therefore reach out and kill anyone who attempted to drag them out of the cave. Yeah, it's exactly the story. Isn't it? Yeah. Because, now, and even at the end when um, Joseph Adams, he decides he wants to go back up to help mm-hmm. write the speeches and then that guy saint nick even says something like we're not going to let you which i took to mean they're probably just going to kill him and not let him mm-hmm. go back yep. up to the earth and then there's there's other levels too like uh, i was thinking how badly the 
the sort of the plot machinations don't don't work for me, but I think in rereading they might work better because one of the things that that's going on with those fake artifacts, right? That and the fake uh, journal entries that need to be written for magazines so they can sue him for violating a law he didn't actually violate because the items aren't real in the first place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things that the the time scoop, which by the way is used in a few other Philip K. Dick things as well, uh, the time scoop does is they lay the artifacts not on the surface but beneath the surface right they're placing them in the geological strata and this is actually so important this is very much a sort of uh critical thinking sort of story because what actually and and that's why i'm sort of really interested also in the unreconstructed m Mm -hmm. because what what makes us believe that the earth is as old as it is and that, you know, science as we understand it is, is evidence that we find and cannot be uh, questioned when you keep finding it over and over again. It sort of really points in the direction of, of a truth, mm-hmm. right? So you go down into the earth and you, damn, if I didn't find these dinosaur bones under, uh, six million layers of, uh, you know, earth that have been laid down over millennia. These dinosaur bones are there. But uh, if you're a little bit paranoid, you say, no, they're fake. Somebody faked them. Mm-hmm. And they faked the other ones too? Well, Philip K. Dick has a whole story about that, right? Uh, <laughs> an evidence-laying assassin robot, a false evidence-laying assassin robot that will prove that somebody else did the murder who wasn't actually there. It's it's a uh, it's a brilliant sort of reversal of the you you can question everything and that's what gives us science but if you question the science as well by in proposing an idea for a, a scientific way of questioning uh, everything then you have a Philip K. Dick story yeah <laughs> it's good stuff yeah it's really good it makes me think of um while you're talking that. Uh, Vulcan's hammer again as well because that mm-hmm. was the same kind of society as well, right? Like the it was two groups of people. One had no critical thinking. They were kind of like mobs. That's right. Um, the the the, the Vulcans, you know, helped tell them what to think. Right. You couldn't question the little girl. Like ask the question and gets like pulled out of class. Yeah, it's a it's a real theme that he's he's struggling with. That yeah. I, I mean, I I don't know about you guys, but I don't try and get into conversations with strangers. <laughs> I just have had too many disappointing experiences. <laughs> <laughs> just what happens is, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, okay. You <laughs> as a human being, because you're one of the species, I guess. But um, that's. I can't that's, remember whose quote that is. That uh, it was um when I first moved to Germany. There was some quote that was like, um, it's great to be in a country where you don't understand the language because you can walk around and just imagine that everyone is so much more intelligent and rational than, you know, once you start understanding the language, you're like, oh, God, we're all idiots. It's true. <laughs> it's true. true. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, novel, the print novel version that uh, I found on the Internet has an afterword by Thomas Dish, who was a mm. science fiction writer and commenter, and – I wanted to read a paragraph, 
the last paragraph because it ties in stuff you were talking about about Plato's cool. cave and about what he was thinking about he worried about Heathrow at the novel. He had he had problems with it, but ultimately he likes it. And this is what he says. If now he's he's talking about uh, the how how the stories and he's talking about the the moldy antsy and uh, the defenders come together. Mm-hmm. If Dick had stopped to think. But that's something a downhill racer can't do. He basically explains that Dick is like a downhill racer of a writer. He might mm. have realized that there was an essential dramatic disparity between the two stories he was trying to weld together. The Yancey part of the plot generated a story about dirty tricks in high places, a genre for which Dick possesses little flair compared to Lacar or in his better imitators, while that element of the story that, that all readers remember after the lapse of However many years is the notion of the human race imprisoned in underground factories because they've been tricked into believing that a nuclear war has destroyed the world. It's an extraordinarily resonant idea. One thinks of the dwellers in Plato's cave who know nothing of the reality mm-hmm. but the shadows cast on the wall of the similar destiny of Wells Mork locks, of the prisoners in Beethoven's Fidelio, and of ourselves, living in the shadows of a nuclear threat that is only bearable by pretending it does not exist. To have recognized that our situation is a kind of madness, what me worried, saying Titanic's mm. passengers, has not helped us toward a solution. For our solution with respect to the bomb is not much different in 1983 than it was in 1964. And for that reason, the penultimate truth, for all its flaws, remains a book that can speak to the terror that is the bedrock of our social order. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there was something that happened after the threat of nuclear war sort of, uh, I mean, it didn't go away. It just sort of uh, faded off into the distance, right? So that we, it's still there. We'll still all die, but we don't think about it, right? It used to be like, I was, I I probably said this on a podcast before. When I was a kid, I was plotting the distance away I would need to be from, you know, downtown Vancouver in order to not be completely fried. Um, and like, oh, there's a mountain there. That'll, that'll help me. That, this is something you shouldn't have to be worrying about when you're, you know, a kid. Yeah. But it was. Mm. I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, a few years where every movie that was science fiction just basically showed a nuclear wasteland and war happening. Um, but after that sort of goes away, after, you know, Commonwealth of Independent States and Russia becomes slightly less uh, of a threat somehow. Um, then this sort of insipid uh, Kardashianism seems to have taken over. And I'm not saying, may, may, I'm may, not may, saying may, that it wasn't there before, because if you watch television from uh, the period before that, um, oh, most of it is is un, unwatchably horrible. And it, I think it was maybe in reaction to, I don't know. But yeah, we seem to have gotten worse. And the book is still relevant despite the fading away of the nuclear threat. Right, because we, 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 have, we have the uh, the idea of our society being molded by stupid stuff. It, I mean, it, our, as you said, Kardashians are Yancey and we're happily trotting along and the 99% accepting the 1% doing because we get told what to do and dick saw dick saw that we're prisoners in this cave we may not be in tanks but we're prisoners in this cave and breaking free is something that we don't seem to be able to do yeah and the internet rather than like helping us and giving us more information it's like our yancey like just like <laughs> oh, hey God. kids let's all like the same thing on facebook and let's all send oh. the same memes around and like <laughs> 
Oh yes, follow follow me on Facebook for more information. Yeah, and everyone just posts the same stuff. Like we're all just becoming like this, like the. It's true. We all have the same opinions. I I think that that is the, the PC element. I was thinking so strongly about how it is. It how did political correctness come to be, and it is interesting because it is it's like fascism. Um. But you can't use that word. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's exactly like fascism because everybody has to conform. Yeah, or else. There was a story about, um, speaking of cowboy uh, movie stars, there was a story about uh, John Wayne or John Wayne Day, something in California. They were going to try and implement a John Wayne Day. Uh, I think it was on Boing Boing the other day. Um, and there was a backlash against it. Um, because John Wayne was super racist, apparently. And there's some quotes from an interview in Playboy uh, to back up the argument uh, on on the Boing Boing post. And I was le- reading what John Wayne said, and he said, yeah, what an asshole. <laughs> I'm reading, he says, the Indians were selfish because they had all this land and they didn't want to share. <laughs> I'm like... Hmm. <laughs> that. But but I also think that it's so refreshing. Even though he's a complete asshole, um, you can't hear people say stuff like that. Um, and yeah, Donald Trump, the power word that all my students have to say now. He's like he's he's le- he's legitimized swear words. If you want to make adults angry, all you have to do is say Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It's a power word, and the reason it's a power word is because he is willing to say whatever the hell he wants to say. And it's un, unmitigated by, uh, ooh, um, well, we have to be more sensitive to uh, all persons. And and the thing is, is, yeah, of course we do. But you have to come to that. You can't just adopt it. Yeah. You have to argue with the racism and say, oh, that's this is why we have to do it, right? You have to sort of really struggle. And you don't say... Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch paintings are lovely and everyone should have one on their wall because they're lovely. You say Hieronymus Bosch paintings are horrible and you might want to have one on your wall if you've struggled enough with it and come to appreciate what's in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, he's so good. He really does dig. I mean, this whole um, Kriegspiel argument that I think he makes, by the way, he's te- he's wrong on a couple of the technicalities as he no he's an autodidact it's, it's okay but he's right in general in that yeah you really do have to struggle and you know i don't like bach like like dick does and i don't have to mm-hmm. but um he's right in that everyone should struggle with this and not just have it sort of be a fascist uh i don't know yeah that it's a dictate from on high yeah, or or a, how, however the hell Yanceys do it, right? By subtly uh, social control. Make, yeah, a, a lot of it, uh, I think, is just time. So if you are spending your time thinking about, uh, you know, I walk by the lottery counter in the grocery store and I see a re- perfectly reasonable person walk, carrying their groceries out and then they stop and they get a lottery ticket. And I think, oh... Oh well, yeah. <laughs> there goes theory about a perfectly reasonable person I'm living in a society with. Oh, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, what, what can you do? Yeah. yeah. I, there's no. Uh, there's no way to fix that. And 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 then I think, oh, they have a job and they can afford to buy groceries. And how is this possible? <laughs> <laughs> oh well. <laughs> yeah, it has, it, that's why that um, that 1984 thing really fits in here as mm-hmm. well with that kind of like yeah you do have to just think about it and not have this kind of society where everyone's just watching each other and making sure that you're thinking the right thing just because it's the right thing and you know uh one of the things that's really cool about 1984 uh at least on the second reading right is that um the people who are in the rewriting rooms right our our protagonist in that book um he's more subject to it than the proles are right the proles they kind of ignore the prole feed. But once you've been making the prole feed long enough, you are in the political part of it, right? All those tankies who don't know what's, what's the struggles going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, are kind of, you know, uh, there's a line in this book about the meek inheriting the earth. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, and it says maybe we weren't meek enough. <laughs> Um, and you're not sure if that's the uh, uh, the uh, the the guys who have these vast sprawling demances uh, with millions of uh, thousands of uh, robot letties serving them, or we're talking about the people who are hiding away in, like little rats in a in a tank, mm-hmm. the earth. It's like, yeah, well, he's sort of talking about the human condition. I think it's it's pretty great. It, it's it, a good book. Yeah, it's it, it, he he once again pulls a pulls a pulls the veil of reality aside so that we can see what things really are, even if it's through Dick's Funhouse lens for just a brief time, and then then it goes. Then we go back to the shadows. Uh, there's a I, I want to read the there's. A little bit here I found that I thought was pretty pretty awesome from the actual Republic and actually from the text of the Republic of uh, talking about the myth of the cave or the allegory of the cave. Um, and listen to this. Now, if you take such a one and cut away from him those leaden weights of pleasure and desire which bind his soul to the earth, his intelligence will be turned round and he will behold the truth as clearly as he discerns his meaner ends. And we have not decided that our rulers must neither be so uneducated as to have no fixed rule of life, nor so overeducated as to be unwilling to leave their paradise for the business of the world. Oh, like, wow. Yeah, it's like, yeah, he's got it. He, and d- you can almost see Dick reading this long time ago, right? Yeah. And then starts yeah. writing... Leaden weights, right? Yep. Leddies. And the leddies and the, what are they? They're in, in the original book, they are, uh, sorry, in the original story, they are soldiers who are melting down the weapons that are being sent up to them, right? Mm-hmm. And in, and, and in the novel here, um, they are the things that are being manufactured are the replacement soldiers for the armies of the 1%. And then we get that, you know, how much do you need to be educated? Is it just to be, 
good at your job and good at business? Or uh, what are you earning all that money for? Is it for uh, gold or is it for lead? They both weigh you down. Right? It's yeah. like, wow, yeah. Mr. you really did grasp what was going on in that book and, and did something with it. Yeah. So no matter how bad I you know, say this isn't a great book, he really is str- struggling with massive things. And, you know, being a downhill skier of a writer, um, sometimes he rushes to the end too quick because of the deadline or whatever. I still think it works somehow. I think it really does. Yeah, like, I want to read it again because I do think it ties together. And I think if I was going to recommend it to people, which I would, I would definitely add The Mold of Yancey at least, mm. like on it, like you've got to read them together. Yeah, I wish it was public domain because it is so good that it's um it's 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 not even that great of a story. What it is is he's just such a great idea man. Yeah. He really engages with um the situation. You know, there is a story I want I want you guys to look at because I I sort of had the same feeling about it when I read it. It's called Souvenir, um which is public domain. I read it I'm like something weird about this story. I don't know why I like it, but I do. And I think there's going to be something in it that's like this, that's just going to blow you away. In the same way that The Defenders is improved upon reflection uh, with this book, I think that that story is probably going to be similarly reflection awesome. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention one more thing about ideas and uh, Philip K. Dick from Dish. This is from earlier in that afterword. Mm-hmm. Um, the wonder is how often Dick was able to produce work of real interest and wit in these marathons of typewriting, because he had just been talking about how much, how many novels he'd been ch- churning out. For readers mm-hmm. who read at a pace proportioned to the, the speed of writing, as most SF fans are learned to do, or else being fans, the dull patches disappear into a haze of white power as they careen down the slopes of the narrative. It is the ideas mm-hmm. they are after, and Dick always provides more than the sufficiency of these. Mm. So yep, yeah, dude, he's got it. Yep, Dish no knew, knew what Dick was all about. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, there's usually enough to sustain uh, during those those the, those patterns. There are, there are a few of his longer novelettes that I'm like, why the hell did he write this? It's just so long. It's so, oh yeah, he has to pay the bills and <laughs> they they have a word count that they'll let him hit. So uh, it's just too much plot, not enough story, but. Uh, he. I'm surprised, but he, he could weld together these three stories and um, do something with. Yeah, it's yeah. A, I'll take that one. I'll take that. And maybe mm-hmm. he's not even doing it conscious. Well, I mean, it'd be fascinating to talk to him. It's pity, mm-hmm. pity, you can't ask. Did you specifically think you would think, oh, can I take the defenders and the re- unreconstructed M and the molding ants and put them together, or were you just thinking of those stories as you're writing and pulling them together that way? What was your process, man? <laughs> Was it deliberate, or were you just like taking from that giant of war you have and sticking together? What is it? So, Marissa, you were at a conference recently uh, with a bunch of dick wives and lovers uh, talking about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, Cal State. How, how much? How much does that uh, the sort of the takeaway we get when we read a book and sort of figure out what he's doing and nodding and winking at? How much is that reflected in what you were hearing? Um, a lot. They were. He just sounds. Their main thing was um, that they kept on repeating was a just how much he loved everyone, like mm-hmm. children and animals and people. Um, but then if you crossed him, 
you know, he would feel <laughs> be so betrayed and angry. Right, right. So I think that comes across in his books and just also like how funny he is. Like they were just telling all these really funny stories about him. Just he's always like playing tricks on people and, and saying mm. things that he doesn't, you know, that are kind of have double meanings and yeah. just playing. I feel like that's what you get it from his books as well. Like you're like, oh, mm. this guy just, he, he doesn't care that much about like, does this work? He's just having fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that that's one of the things I love about Philip K. Dick is that he he almost <clears throat> seems unca- incapable of feeling like self-conscious about what he loves. Yeah. So the fact that one of my favorite stories by him is called Rug. It's a short story about a dog that howls at night and uh-huh. at garbage at garbage the garbage truck in the morning, and it's like. Can you pick a a subject that is less uh you know cosmic in scope than a dog barking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> garbage truck. <you> know? <laughs> and you read it and you go, this guy, he just he just loves being alive and he loves uh being passionate about all of these weird little things and it so pays off because um it's. Uh, Every once in a while, I start watching a um, uh, new. I, I watch the pilots for a new science fiction show or something, right? Mm-hmm. Called Colony. Uh, that I it came out last year, and I start I start watching the pilot, and it's like, okay, so they got the family at home, the dom- domesticity that you normally see, and they s- try and pitch it in a certain way. I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm out. <laughs> Basically, it is is they have a family dynamic showing you so you have the sympathy of the, you know, have sympathy for the characters when the bad stuff starts happening or something. And they overlay, like, the kind of music that is designed so crappily manipulative <laughs> to put you into that space. Oh, and yeah, it throws out of it. It throws me out of it so hard mm-hmm. that I just sort of have to walk away. What Dick does is he gets a bunch of sort of idiosyncratic people and just doesn't try to make them conform to any sort of uh, idealized role, but instead engages with them in a real way. Yeah. So that that dog is uh, it was based on a real dog right that right. lived across the street had a name well actually super. <laughs> yeah um jonathan latham was at this conference and he's telling her he tells a really funny story about that he went to see philip k dick's house i think uh not long after he died or maybe even while he was still alive and uh he got chased away by a dog the neighbor's dog <laughs> was barking at him and he's <laughs> talking about that rogue story but, but that was another thing that came up a lot with all those people was uh, all of his friends were saying how he was so good at like self-examination. Like if mm. they criticized him or said something about his ideas, he would go into a you know a black rage and not speak to them for like a month. And then he would come back to them and he would have thought about it and he'll change his mind and be like, oh, yeah, actually. You know, so th- I feel like that's what he's doing in his books a lot is kind of mm. he doesn't have like a a super strong opinion. He'll kind of explore it and play with it. Yeah. He's, he's really much the anti-fascist, right? Yeah. As yeah. he, he 
he has a strong opinion and then it goes away uh-huh. be- <laughs> yeah. because he thought about it a, a bit more and he's being critical. I love that. It's so good. It's so, it's so smart. Mm-hmm. He's wise as well as, you know, crazy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> he's gone out and stared at the sun too long and <laughs> <laughs> he's blind, but he's, nice. he's, but he's come, but he's glimpsed the greater truths. That's right. I, I keep thinking Nas. I keep thinking Gnosticism again whenever I think about Phil K. Dick and. Well, we're gonna get into that pretty soon, right? Oh yeah. That Gnostic zone. I, I hear this is like yep. where his fallout stories kind of disappear and then. Right. Yep. I'm gonna miss them. <laughs> yeah, totally missable. But but you but you listeners, if you haven't yet been tempted to pick up Phil K. Dick by this point in this. In our series, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you should be reading some of these. Oh, they were too busy watching the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> don't say that about your listeners. They would never. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't do that. No way. I, that's a TV show, right? The Kardashians is a TV show. All I all I know reality is that they're, show or yeah. they're, they're, okay. they're a fixture of our false reality. Oh, well. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. All right, I think we got a show there.